There is a debt that you have that you will be paying off the rest of your life, and even then, will be paying that debt into the ages of the ages. And that might sound like a depressing thought, but actually, paying off this debt that we owe is, is not at all a sorrowful activity, but it is what actually brings the most joy into our lives. We don't normally think of paying debts as something that we enjoy, but here, there is a case where we have a debt that will never be paid, and yet, in paying it, we find true meaning and purpose in our lives. I'd like to read for you Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. Follow along in your Bibles. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. You see, for our outline this morning, we're going to be looking at four points. First of all, we're going to be talking about paying your debts. He starts off here in Romans chapter 13, verse 8, saying, Owe no one anything. And this is building off of what he had just said in the previous verses. Paul does this very well throughout Romans 12 and 13, connecting one thought to another as he transitions through the Christian life and what the practical Christian life looks like. And so if you back up to verse 7, Paul had said in regards to submission to the governing authorities, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So he uses that word owed a number of times through there, and so that leads him in verse 8 to talk about our moral obligations. When Paul writes, owe no one anything except to love each other, he's referring here not to the paying of financial debts per se, but he's referring to the moral obligations that we have towards one another. This word owe can be used metaphorically in that way. And so some people have looked at Romans chapter 13 verse 8 and thought, well, is this verse prohibiting Christians from ever borrowing money for a car loan or for a house loan or for a student loan, any of those types of things? Is this a verse that is condemning fractional reserve banking or anything along those lines? Well, that's a sermon for another day. But let me just say this, that the Bible does not condemn borrowing of money. The Bible does condemn excessive interest on money, and that's called usury, and that would be another sermon as well. But I just wanted to make that point from Matthew chapter 5, verse 42, where Jesus says, give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And so if Jesus encourages us to lend, well then obviously lending is not a sin. Jesus wouldn't encourage us to lend to someone who wants to borrow if borrowing and lending was innately sinful. So this verse cannot be pulled out of its context in order to try to eliminate all borrowing and lending. That's not its point. Instead, the point of this verse is that we as people have certain moral obligations that we are to fulfill as Christians. Christians are supposed to be those who pay their debts. They pay what they owe. And so let's talk about giving everyone their due. Broadening from the subject of honor and taxes to the governments, 
Paul now broadens it out to our individual relationships, our relationships with businesses, our relationships with family members. There's a great verse in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 27 and 28, that makes this point. That those who are ethically good do not make it difficult for other people to get what is owed to them. Here's a great verse. Proverbs 3, 27 and 28. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. So here, this go and come back later, I'll give it to you tomorrow, you're giving the the person the runaround. You're making it hard for them in order to collect on what is owed. So kids, you borrow a toy from your neighbor, and the neighbor comes over and says, hey, I'd like my toy back. And you say, oh, uh, I think I left it at grandma's house. Uh, Why don't you come back tomorrow and get it then? when really it's down in the basement. See, that's making it difficult for the person that you owe something to to get it. And we as Christians, we do this as adults too. We will sometimes make it difficult for the people who are trying to collect on what is owed to get what we owe to them. The Bible says don't do that. Pay to everyone what you owe them. Give everyone their due. Now, the Bible uses this word owe, and Paul in particular, since we're in Paul's letter here, uses this word owe to refer to many different moral obligations that we have besides just borrowing and lending. For example, a little bit later here, and you could probably just see it by turning a page, in Romans 15.1 it says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So here, you notice I've underlined have an obligation. And that's the same word that is used for owe in verse 8. We owe it to the weak to bear with them and not just to please ourselves. And here the strong are people who are strong in the faith. They know the word of God. They're mature Christians. And the weak are those who are immature. They've got some false ideas still that they haven't grown mature in Christ. And so the strong... They don't just do what they want, but they look out for the weak. That's not just true in spiritual things, but it's also true in all areas of life. If you are a strong person, then God has given you that strength. And you don't use that strength just to please yourself. You use your strength to serve others. This is the moral obligation that we have as those who have received our gifts and abilities from God. Has God made you highly intelligent? Well, don't use your intelligence to promote yourself. Use your intelligence to promote others. Has God given you great skills? Well, don't just use your skill to make yourself rich. Use your skill in order to benefit the lives of others. This is the obligation of being good stewards of what God has given to us in serving others. Another example in Paul's letters is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3. You don't have to turn there. We've got a lot of verses to look at this morning. But there it says, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. And likewise, the wife to her husband. That the marriage bond creates a a debt of love, both physical and emotional, here focusing on the physical relationship. And that this is a debt that you owe, and you should not be making it difficult for your spouse in order to enjoy marital love. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3. Also, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 14. Children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. All right, kids, sometimes you think, you come to church and all you hear is honor your father and mother, and it's always the preacher telling you what the kid's responsibility is. is. Well, here, the Word of God is telling parents what their responsibility is. 
kids, we don't expect you to go to work and support us. You expect us to go to work and support you. And your dads are doing that, and your moms are working hard to make sure that you have what you need. Children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. That word obligated, the same word as owe, back in Romans chapter 13, verse 8. One final example here, and there's others that I haven't included, but Ephesians chapter 5, verse 28 says, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. And the word should there is the word for to owe, a debt. So husbands have a debt of love towards their wives that they should not neglect in paying day by day. So you could go through many different moral obligations. Here I've just picked out the ones that use this particular word. But of course the concept applies to everything that is right. Every responsibility that God has placed upon you to others, you fulfill that responsibility. Owe nothing to anyone except to love each other. And this, of course, is so connected together in the scriptural thinking that Paul puts these side by side. Love is that act of giving to others the moral responsibility that we have in serving them and meeting their needs as God has ordered society and given us ability. Let's talk about the second point in our outline. The debt of love that we owe. So we'll talk in life about, you know, if someone does you a favor, we'll say, I owe you one, right? You do me a favor, well, I owe you one. I'll be there for you in the future. Well, the ultimate favor that has been done for you has been done by God on your behalf. The grace and favor of God in the Lord Jesus Christ is what has created this debt of love that is so great that it will never be paid back no matter how much love and service you show towards God and God's family. This is the debt that is never paid. We're not talking about the national debt. We're moving on from talking about government and citizenship issues. No, we're talking about the spiritual debt of the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so as we sang earlier, Alas, and did my Savior bleed? And though our eyes might melt to tears, as Isaac Watts wrote, these drops of grief can never repay the debt of love that I owe. The only way to repay the debt of love that we owe towards God is to do what Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says. Turn back a page in your Bibles. Look at it again. A verse that we should definitely memorize. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. And what are the mercies of God? That's everything that Paul covered from Romans chapter 1 all the way up through Romans chapter 8, talking about total depravity, our sinfulness leading to death, and how God sent Jesus Christ into the world to be the propitiation for our sins. This is the love of God. This is the mercy of God. And because of God's gift towards us, that while we were his enemies, Christ died for us, God gave his only Son, Therefore, what do we do? We present our bodies a sacrifice, a living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice to God, which is your spiritual worship. So, the love to God is this debt that we pay off. But the debt that we pay off, we don't pay to God directly because God has need of nothing. Instead, we pay off our debt to God by loving one another. That is how this debt is paid. Acts chapter 17, verse 25, illustrates why this is. 
Paul there in preaching the gospel, he said, God is in heaven. He can't be served with human hands as if he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So what are you going to give to God that he needs? What can you give to God that is going to be useful to him that he doesn't already have? Well, worship is one thing we give to God, but he has no physical needs. He has no emotional needs. He has no spiritual needs. He's perfect. He has everything that he needs in himself. There's nothing outside of God that he requires in order to be blessed. But that's not the case with his creatures. That's not the case with his children. You have needs. I have needs. And in meeting one another's needs, as God has given us diverse abilities, different spiritual gifts, as we talked about in Romans chapter 12, in serving the saints, then as we build one another up, meeting the spiritual, emotional, physical needs of people in the body of Christ, this is how we pay back that debt to God. So if you want to be kind to me, be kind to my children. Serve them in Sunday school and and be a a blessing to them in whatever ways you can, and that's a blessing to me. Now, I'm, I'm not saying I have everything I need and that I don't need ministry also. I do, but we all recognize that when someone blesses our family, it's a blessing to us. And so if you want to love God then love God's children, as we saw in our scripture reading in 1 John chapter 4. What an amazing passage that was. We serve God by serving his people, and not just his people, but we also serve God by loving others on the earth. Look again at Romans chapter 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. Now, when the Bible mentions loving each other, it's referring to the household of faith. It's talking about the church, fellow believers. You have one another or each other commands throughout the epistles. And this is where the primary focus of our love is directed. But that doesn't mean that we don't also love those who are not a part of the church, those who are outside of Christ, those who are not believers. No, we love especially the family of God, but we have a debt of love to pay to the world as well. And that's why Paul expands it here beyond just loving each other into the fulfillment of the law when he says, the one who loves another. And that word for another doesn't just refer to believers, it refers to anyone. Like when Jesus Christ was asked, who is my neighbor? He made it clear that he wasn't just talking about those who are in your in-group, but also those who are part of the other the outgroup. So when you love the other, then you are fulfilling the commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, quoted in the end of verse 9 from Leviticus. We'll get to our relationship to the law here in a minute, but before we do, let's talk a little bit more about our love for one another. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 Verses 13 and 14. A couple of weeks ago now, we had our men's conference. We were invited to participate with Countryside Bible Church. And they brought in a guest speaker to talk about being a man and to base that in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. So we had great exhortation from these terse commandments there at the end of Paul's letter to this struggling church, this church that was full of problems, and yet a church that was richly blessed in many ways. And so the commandments here that Paul includes at the very last chapter, 
before his final greetings is be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. I wanted to direct our attention here, not only because many of us were there at the conference and heard these words recently, but also because we have a tendency in our culture to have a wrong idea of what love is. Love is the most important commandment that God has left us through Jesus Christ and his apostles. It is the prime directive of the church. And so we must be very clear. What does it mean to love one another? What is the biblical definition of that word for love? And in our culture, the word love sometimes gets watered down a little bit. It gets used for many different purposes and in many different contexts. And so we as Christians can sometimes start to develop our idea of love from our culture rather than from the Word of God. So sometimes it might be better to not even use the word love because it has been so abused. Perhaps we should go back to the old word charity. Charity is doing what is best for others even when it's a sacrifice for yourself. When we think about giving to charity, people are giving up something good, something that they could use for themselves in order to be a blessing to others. The root idea in charity is that of goodwill, that of benevolence, and not only just goodwill and benevolence, but a sacrificial goodwill and benevolence. It's not just wishing other people well, but it's doing something in order to be a blessing to others. In the previous chapter, Paul had given us a number of commands concerning love, and one of the commands in Romans chapter 12 was, bless and do not curse. Bless and do not curse. Now, blessing and cursing is language that's not really used in our secular culture. Secular culture doesn't bless and curse, but when you have a theistic worldview, when you believe that there is a God who is sovereign, who is in charge of providence, then when you are blessing someone, you are asking God to bring good things into their life. And that is the attitude of Christians. We are to be those in the world who are asking God to bring good things into the lives of others. Now, there might be people who don't like you. There might be people who are not Christians and don't like Christians. But does that mean that we ask God to judge them and to curse them and, and to bring disasters into their life? No. We are asking God to bring salvation. We're asking God to bring wisdom. We're asking God to bring humility, repentance. And beyond all that, we're asking God to bless their business. We're asking God to bless their family. We're asking God to bless their health. This is the attitude of a Christian that we bless those who curse us. And we do not curse in return. So when we're talking about love, we're not just talking about good feelings towards someone, which is so often the idea that we have in our culture. Somebody will say, well, you know, I love this person. It means I really like them. And that's not what the Bible means. The Bible is not commanding you to like everyone. You don't have to like people. If you do, great. If you don't, oh well. But whether you like people or not, you are commanded to bless them. You are commanded to have a heart that wants good things for them and is willing to do what is best for them, even if it's costly for yourself. That's love. That's what we're talking about here. This is a manly kind of love. I was watching a video of uh, just a clip from a movie with Denzel Washington. He's got some wisdom, and I think he's a Christian. Anyway, his character in the movie was talking with his son, and his son was complaining to his dad. He says, you know, sometimes I just feel like you don't like me, Dad. And Denzel Washington's character looked at him and said, is my job to like you? Is that what 
that I'm put on this earth to do? I thought my job was to, to raise you and to clothe you and to tell you when you're acting a fool. I don't have to like you. That's the way it is. We love our kids, whether we like them or like what they're doing or not. That's what the Bible's talking about, this manly kind of love. Look at it again. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. People say, well, your church doesn't feel very loving. Well, it's not about the feelings. It's not about the feelings. It's about truth. It's about being watchful and standing firm, being strong and acting like a man. That is what goes along with biblical love. In the previous century, there was a humanist psychologist named Carl Rogers. In 1956, he published a book that popularized the idea that counselors, when counseling, are to have an unconditional positive regard for their patients. Unconditional positive regard. If you want a pastor who has unconditional positive regard for you, find a different church. I don't have to like everything you're doing. I don't have to affirm everything that you're doing. You want a pastor who's going to come to you and tell you when you're acting a fool. And say, I don't like this. It's not good. Stop doing it. It's hurting people. It's hurting you. It dishonors God. You say, well, that's a little harsh. You know, a little judgmental. I'm not getting the feels. When the Bible commands us to love, let's be clear about what the Bible is talking about. God didn't so like the world that he gave his only son. God loved the world, which meant that he wanted to bless his enemies, and he was willing to sacrifice in order to do it. Unconditional positive regard cares about people's feelings more than it cares about their well-being. Unconditional positive regard cares more about our relationship with people than it does their relationship to God. There's a lot of churches that have bought into this and they've got the spirit of unconditional positive regard and therefore they will not speak against sin, they will not abhor what is evil, they want to find the middle road on everything and finding the middle road is how Satan gets us off the path. Let me explain what I mean by that. Hegel's dialectic is a philosophical point of view that has some truth in it. Hegel was a philosopher and he pointed out that when it comes to the conflict of ideas within a society, you've got an established idea that is believed by most people and that's your thesis. And then it is challenged by an opposite idea called an antithesis. And then this idea that's established and this insurgent idea battle it out in the battle of ideas and what comes together is a fusion of the two into a synthesis. There's some truth in this. This is how ideas are progressed in culture. And so, what the extremists have done is they have proposed really radical antitheses in order to try to battle against the established truth, and then when these battles come together as a synthesis, it, it moves truth towards the radical direction that they want. Not everything that the left proposes is what they actually believe. Some of the things they propose is because they just want to be so extreme that they want to move the conversation in that direction through the battle of ideas. And so pastors, they're like, okay, 
what used to be acceptable is now here because the battle of ideas keeps moving things along. And so I'm not going to be this weird extremist on the left, but I don't want to be way over here on the right. I just kind of want to find a happy balance in the middle where I can make everybody happy. That's not love. That's not love. If the left is way radical and the word of God is way over here, we're going to stand over here. And it doesn't matter if we're outside of the realm of what is politically acceptable or politically correct. We're not trying to please men. We're not trying to build the fields. We're not trying to establish relationships. What we're trying to do is preach the truth and live the truth and be a shining light of the truth. We are speaking the truth in love. And love is that willingness to sacrifice, willingness to be misunderstood, willing to be called names, because we're doing what is best for people and most honoring to God. Now the general command that we have here in Romans chapter 13, as I said, it was filled in with many of the commands at the end of Romans chapter 12. You could think of Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, as being kind of an insert. And you could really connect Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, with what Paul had been instructing concerning love in Romans 12, 9 through 21. Let's take a look at those verses again. Come back to Romans chapter 12. I want to just read for you, refresh your memories, these verses about the commandments of love. What do we know about love? What does love look like in action? Let love be genuine. It's not a put-on love. It's not a hypocritical love. It's not a love that is pretending to look out for your best interests, but really looking out for my best interests. That's not the love that we are called to. But that's what love that we see so often in fallen humanity. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. You hold fast to what is good. You abhor what is evil. You don't find a compromise position between good and evil. That's not what you do. You reject the evil and you hold fast to what is good. You love one another with brotherly affection. The feels there, there's nothing wrong with the feels. And you outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. You can't love other people as a lazy Christian. You have to be serving the Lord and rejoicing in hope and being patient in tribulation, being constant in prayer and contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So here, you don't just say you love, but you actually meet people's needs. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so the the commands here just continue on with the love focus in verses 8 through 10. The focus on charity. The focus on self-sacrificial benevolence. That's what love is. Now let's take a look at our third point in our outline. That is the relationship of love to the law of God. You see this here very well in these verses. Paul does this in a number of places. 
as Jesus himself has taught along these lines, and Paul is drawing his teaching from that well of the Lord Jesus Christ's teaching. And here, when he's giving the important command that we have from Jesus Christ, relayed through the apostles, to love one another, we see that this command from Jesus Christ is what is allowing Christians in the New Covenant to fulfill the law of the Old Covenant. Paul brings in the commandments there in verses 9 as he has referred to this fulfillment of the law at the end of verse 8. And then he repeats that same idea at the end of verse 10, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. What is our relationship to the law? Well, you read through Romans, you read through Galatians, and you find out that we as New Testament Christians, we as New Covenant believers, we have died to the law. And we're talking about the law, we're not talking about the law of the United States or the law of Nebraska, we're talking about the Mosaic law, the law of the Old Testament scriptures, that we have died to the law, as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 7, verse 4. That we are free from the curse of the law for The law reveals that the penalty for sin is death. And now, having been set free from that penalty of the law, we're not under the law, but we are under grace, as Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 14. Now, because we have died to the law, because we are free from the curse of the law, this has led some Christians in the first century all the way down to the 21st century of the church to get the wrong idea about the Christian life and to think that, We as Christians, we are antinomian. That is, that we are lawless. That there are no rules for us anymore and that that we can do whatever we want because we're free from the law. We died to the law. And that's a misunderstanding of what Paul is talking about. It's a misunderstanding of Jesus' teachings through his apostles. No, we are not antinomian. We are not lawless. But instead of being under the law of Moses, the Bible reveals that we are under a new law law, that new law is called the law of Christ. James refers to the law of Christ, and Paul refers to the law of Christ. I love that God does this because so many people throughout the history of the church have wanted to set James and his letter against Paul and his letters and say, here, Paul is teaching this radical new way of living, the Christian life, and James, he's, he's more of the, the Jewish Christian who's teaching that you've got to obey the law. But Interestingly, both Paul and James refer to the law, not as the law of Moses, but that we are under the law of Christ. You could write down some references here to to check me on that. James chapter 1 verse 25 refers to the law of liberty. James chapter 2 verse 12. And then Paul refers to the law of Christ in 1 Corinthians 9.21 and also in Galatians chapter 6 verse 2. So Paul's saying, just because our relationship to the Old Testament law is not the same as the Jews who were living under the law, that doesn't mean that we are not going to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. Well, you say, what do you mean by that? Well, let's take a look at Jesus' words on the subject. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. What James and Paul and all the other apostles teach on this subject is, of course, consistent with what the Lord Jesus Christ himself taught concerning the law. Jesus said that he did not come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill the law. There's that key word that Paul uses in Romans chapter 13 about our relationship to the law. 
And what does it mean that Jesus Christ has come to fulfill the law and that we as Christians, when we act according to the commandments of Christ, we also are fulfilling the law? Well, we'll get some basis for that here in Matthew chapter 22, towards the end of the chapter. You see in verse 34 that one of the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, and so they themselves gathered together, and they thought, well, the Sadducees did a bad job of trapping Jesus in a question. Let's see if we can do better. So one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. And when the Bible says that he asked a question in order to test him, what it means is he wasn't asking a question because he wanted to know what Jesus thought. He wasn't someone who was like, oh, teach me, I'm really ready to, to become your disciple and to believe what you say. No, that this, this question is coming from someone who is not genuinely looking for teaching, but he's looking for an opportunity to use some of Jesus' words against him. All right? So the Sadducees were trying to trap him. Now one of the Pharisees is trying to trap him. And so exactly what they hope to get out of this question, I'm not sure. But they ask him this question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus Christ, when he went to summarize everything that God was trying to get his people to do in all of the hundreds of commandments that he gave them in the Old Testament, he said that all of these commandments are designed to get us to love God and to love our neighbor as ourself. This is repeated in other Gospels as Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy and Leviticus to establish the summary of the law from these verses. And so Paul is doing that same thing. He's saying, you can take all those Old Testament commandments, wrap them up, and the main point of those commandments is to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Paul doesn't refer to the loving the Lord your God with all of your heart in Romans chapter 13 because his focus is just on our relationships with one another in those few verses. But of course, if you ask Paul, he would say the same thing as Jesus as regards to the purpose of the law in directing our hearts to love the Lord our God as well. Also, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 5. I've told you many times, you may remember, that the book of Galatians, though written earlier than the book of Romans, has the same content, the same themes, in large part, as the book of Romans. Some people look at the book of Galatians as kind of the rough draft, so to speak, although I don't want to put down any part of Scripture. It's all inspired. It's all God's Word. It's all perfect. And yet, the book of Romans expands and organizes the ideas that are here in Galatians into a larger, more comprehensive explanation of the gospel. But the issues of the law and our relationship to the law that are such a big part of Romans were first written about by Paul here in the churches of Galatia. And so in Galatians chapter 5, we come to the practical part of the book. Throughout Paul's letters, he follows this pattern a number of times. Well, he'll start off with the doctrine, 
and then he'll say, okay, now that you know what God has done for you, here's what you're supposed to do in response. Here's the, the practical Christian life. And so Paul doesn't give a lot of specific details of the Christian life in Galatians chapter 5, but instead what he does is he lays out the principles by which the Christian life is lived because many people in the churches of Galatia were misunderstanding Paul's gospel and thinking that he was teaching lawlessness, antinomianism, that it doesn't matter what you do. If God has loved me and forgiven me and I'm on my way to heaven and I don't have to keep God's law in order to earn my salvation, then some people conclude, ergo, it doesn't matter what I do with my life. And that's exactly wrong. Just because God loves me, no matter what I do, doesn't mean that it doesn't matter what I do. There's more to consider here than my eternal security. There's more to consider here than whether I go to heaven when I die. God will love me no matter what I do, but God cares a lot about what I do. Think about you and your children. Are you ever going to stop loving your children for anything that they would do? No. And that's what it means for us being adopted into God's family. God's never going to stop loving us. But does it matter to you what your children do? Yes, it matters a lot to you what your children do. And that's the way it is with our Heavenly Father. And so Paul is explaining here in Galatians chapter 5, how is it that we live a life that is pleasing to God? And he says it's not according to the law, but it's according to the Spirit. In the Old Covenant, they had the law that told them what was right and what was wrong, but they didn't have the Spirit of God to empower them to do what was right. In the New Covenant, God has poured out His Holy Spirit, so now we as Christians, you can read the great Holy Spirit chapter in Romans chapter 8 for a reminder, we have the power to do the will of God from the heart. And what is the will of God? Love. Biblical love. Charity, if you want to use that word. So here in Galatians chapter 5, let's uh, pick it up there in verse 13. You were called to freedom, brothers, free from the law. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. The exact idea that he's writing about in Romans chapter 13, our text for today, that's what he's saying here in Galatians chapter 5. And then notice the next verse. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So here in brief, Paul expands a little bit about some of the laws that are fulfilled in the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. And that would bring us to the fourth point in our outline. The specific commandments that Paul mentions in Romans chapter 13. Come back to Romans chapter 13. Let's take a look at the commandments that Paul quotes here from the law, the law of Moses. You see it there in verse 9. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, he mentions four of the ten commandments here in verse 9. He doesn't mention them in order. He mentions the seventh commandment, and then the sixth commandment, and then the eighth commandment, and then the tenth commandment. You might say, well, why didn't he put them in order and include the ninth commandment? 
Well, he certainly could have done that, and he could have included the commandment to honor your father and mother as well. But Paul's point here is not to give a list of the Ten Commandments. God does that in other places. Instead, Paul is just pulling out examples to show his main point that when you love people, then you're not going to murder them. When you are willing to sacrifice for the benefit of others, you're not going to steal from them. When you are looking out for the best interest of your neighbor, then you're not going to commit adultery with his wife. These are the actions of someone who is doing what is best for others. So you see here that the commandment to love is not contrary to the Old Testament commandments, but is capturing the very spirit of those commandments and putting all of those commandments into practice. That's why Paul says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Now, in order to do no wrong, to do no harm to a neighbor, you've got to know what is best for your neighbor. You've been given a conscience, and your conscience is there to guide you to know what is wrong, what hurts other people. But your conscience can be misinformed and twisted and silenced. And so the word of God is given to us so that we can discern right from wrong. We can discern what is helpful for other people to what is harmful for other people. You know, just wanting to help people is not enough. You've got to know how to help people. You've got to know what people actually need. And that's where the word of God and the teaching of scripture comes in. And God testifies and he says, this is how I made people to be. This is how I made people to function. This is what a healthy person looks like. And so work towards that. And if anything is working against that, well, then you know that's something that's evil. That's something that's harmful. You've got to abhor what is evil and cling to what is good because you love people and you want what is beneficial for them. Let's take a look at those commandments one more time. You shall not commit adultery. These are marriage rights. You shall not murder. That's the right to life. You shall not steal. The right to personal property. And you shall not covet. Our right to contentment. You know, envy leads towards a a lot of bad attitudes towards people. Envy is a real problem. It tears apart relationships. It poisons the mind against others. Be careful that that you do not covet what God has given to someone else. You know, the covetous soul, it makes God the debtor of every human being. The covetous man says, God can't give that to that person and not give it to everyone. And so God owes to everyone else what he gives to that person. And covetousness, this envious spirit, it's very strong in the world today, and particularly in the socialist movement. Socialism would make God the debtor of every human being on the earth. That if God gives one person one thing, he owes it to everybody. You know, sometimes parents, we kind of fall into this. We think, well, if, if I give one child this, I have to make sure all my child have equal things. You don't... You don't have to give all of your children equal things. You have to give your children love, food, clothing, instruction in the Word of God. But they don't all have to have music lessons. 
They don't all have to have writing lessons. You don't even have to spend the same amount of money on all of them. You're free. Once you've met your biblical obligations to your children, if you want to show favors to one and not show them to other, it may not be wise, but you got the right to do it. You don't owe your children anything more than what the Bible says you owe them. But all that put aside, I encourage you to, to go back to the Old Testament and read the law. Not the first time I've encouraged you to do it. Uh, sometimes you have to hear things several times before you do it. And it was that way for me with some of the investing advice I got. I get the advice once and I'm like, oh yeah, that sounds like a good idea. But then you don't do anything. And you hear it again from another person and it's like, oh yeah, I was going to do something about that. But then you don't. You hear it a third, fourth, or fifth time and then finally you're like, I, I, I did it. And sometimes that's the way it is with the instruction from God's Word. You've got to hear it a few times before you go back and do it. And so I'm telling you again, read the law of God. Go back and get instruction in, in righteousness. Now we're not under the law. Different culture, different time, different place, different nation. But there are principles of wisdom, there are principles of righteousness that are very instructive in the law. All those commandments that God gave, how do you summarize that in one word? Every commandment is summarized in love your neighbor as yourself. So don't just wish for good things for other people. Instruct yourself from God's Word to know what is good for people by reading God's law. And then do what's good for people. So the law is still useful. Don't throw away your Old Testament. Don't think, well, we're New Testament Christians. I don't have to read any of that Old Testament stuff. No, whatever was written in earlier times, Paul's going to say a little bit later in this letter, was written for our instruction. Leviticus was written for you. Deuteronomy was written for you. Have you read it? You know, if God takes the time to write a book for you, you might want to read it. Where do human rights come from? They come from the God who has given them to us, the Creator, and His law reveals what is right and what are our rights. And all the people in the world talking about rights for this and rights for that, just ask them the question, where do rights come from? If they don't come from God, we can make them whatever we want. And what's the point of living by other people's rules? Now, the last thing I want to mention here before we close out is a word about self-love. When Leviticus says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, this is not a command to love yourself. Self-love is assumed, not commanded in the Bible. Self-love is assumed, not commanded in the Bible. And the reason why people get confused on this is, again, because they're using the, the, the world's definition for love. I don't like myself. And so I've got to learn how to love myself. And what I mean by that is I've got to have good feelings about myself. The Bible does not assume that you have good feelings about yourself. The Bible would probably assume the latter, that you are an envious, covetous person who doesn't like yourself and you wish that you were someone else. But envy and covetousness is, is not self-love. When the Bible assumes that we love ourselves, it's using the biblical definition of love. And that is that you're looking out for your own best interests. That you have a, a deep, passionate commitment to do what is good for you. You say, well, what about the person who commits suicide? Well, the person who commits suicide is doing what he or she thinks is best for himself or for herself, irrespective of what 
effect it has on other people. There's a lot of self-love that is being done in the act of suicide. They don't think there's anything else that is good for them but to end themselves. They're pursuing what they think is best for them. That's what the Bible assumes. The Bible assumes you're always going to pursuing what you think is best for yourself. And so, as you have that deep, passionate commitment to pursue what you think is best for yourself, number one, make sure you know what is best for yourself by reading the Bible. And then take that same commitment and make that for other people. I'm committed to doing what is best for you in the same way, with the same intensity, with the same actions by which I do what is best for me. And when you're doing that, then you're living the Christian life. You're fulfilling the law of Moses and you are in obedience to the law of Christ. There's a debt that we owe. There's a debt that we owe that we will never be done paying, not in this life or in the next. But paying off that debt is the most rewarding, the most exciting, the most fulfilling thing that we could ever do in our lives.